Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's episode, I interview Dr. Stephanie Hunt Kennedy, Associate Professor of History at the University of New Brunswick in Canada. And she's the author of Between Fitness and Death, Disability and Slavery in the Caribbean. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hunt Kennedy. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And, you know, such an amazing book. I, I just I just have so many questions, right? We were on uh in, in the in the pre-interview, you know, talking about that, you know, all the oodles and noodles worth of questions I have. And so we'll we'll start out here. What is the Genesis story of Between Fitness and Death? Well, um, I actually began my graduate studies as a historian of metropolitan Britain. Um, But I began to question many of the silences around empire. So there's this, you know, there's this line by Rudyard Kipling in one of his poems, what do they know of England that only England know? And that, um, that was definitely true for me. I, I realized that to, you know, to truly understand the history of Britain, we must look beyond its national borders right? And see it in a global mm-hmm. context. So I kind of switched from, from metropolitan Britain to the Caribbean. And I, I did my PhD at the University of Toronto under the supervision of Dr. Melanie Newton, um, a phenomenal scholar and teacher. And, you know, with the heart of a true mentor, um, Melanie really trained me not only in terms of disciplinary skills, but also on, you know, what it means to study the Caribbean in all its implications and responsibilities. She trained me to foreground the lives of Indigenous and African descent people in my work um, and to position to position myself in the Caribbean, not in the metropole, like kind of looking in, right? And mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things that Melanie taught me was that you know, studying the past, whether or not we're conscious of it, is a decision about how we re- how we relate to power. Um, and when I began, in terms of the disability aspect of my work, when I began um, studying Caribbean history, I was really struck by the connections between the histories of racism and ableism, as well as the prevalence of disability among the enslaved. I grew up with disabled siblings, so disability stories have always been really close to me. And I mm. found, you know, there's a disability scholar named Douglas Beaton. He has this now kind of infamous quote among disability scholars. He says, disability is everywhere once you begin looking for it, but conspicuously absent in the histories we write. And that was mm. certainly true for me. I just saw a disability in the archive of, slave, of Caribbean slavery in so many different ways but very little scholarly work had really focused on disability. And so I kind of followed that intersection between anti-Black racism, disability, and slavery, uh, wrote the dissertation, which then you know became the book many years later. And as someone who is uh, currently in the throes of uh, dissertation prospectus writing, it is great to hear about these stories of dissertations actually being done. Oh my gosh, that's a thing. Um, so, a so finished dissertation <laughs> hey look from, from your mouth to my ears and, and everyone else doing doing the work too so y'all hear that i know you do um and so you know th- th- thank you for that background story because it's always 
good to know where you know the 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 starting you know point for 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 many scholars and in their work and so i really appreciate that and so um you, you touched on this in your um in your opening just then um but to to go more specific disability and race making played integral roles in the british caribbean slavery story you tell in between fitness and death um uh, but Many of the listeners might not know much, if if anything, to be honest, about disability as a specific field of inquiry in the in the in the historian profession. Can you describe to the listeners what disability history is? Yeah. So like African-American studies, um, disability history emerged out of a kind of moment of political activism um, for disability rights. And so one of the things that really just marked that those early years of disability studies um, was that disability historians kind of made a concerted effort to define themselves in opposition to the history of medicine, because the history of medicine had traditionally, and this is not, is not necessarily true now, but had traditionally been a kind of top down field. And it tended to reduce disabled folks to their conditions or their diagnoses. And disability history, in contrast, centers the lives of disabled people and the lived experience of disability, as opposed to centering histories of medicine and and rehabilitation. Um, But disability history is is more than just telling the stories of disabled folks. It's really about kind of illustrating the full humanity of disabled folks, the complex personhood of disabled people. And it's about disabled people as historical actors, right? Not just as passive recipients of medical care. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And I should say that also say that, you know, like the triad of gender, class and race, disability can be used as an analytic lens to give historians a more holistic and critical view of the past. Great, great. And, you know, like like you had mentioned, you know, we, we have the, you know, historical, you know, activism that mm-hmm. that really brought about um, disability history. And, and, and I think that's an important history to tell um, about that, you know, histories of of effectively non-white men largely came into the american and uh and north american and and really the the worldwide academy through Mm -hmm. activism um and and you see that activism going on well right now um Mm -hmm. and 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 so it's really good to understand that and so um you talk about methodologies and and ways of of you know, anal- you know, analyzing history. Um, but but for your particular book in, in total, what methodologies do you lean on to engage the histories of slavery, disability, colonialism, and also gender? Well, you know, speaking of um, disability scholarship, when I began my PhD, there wasn't a lot of histories of disability that focused on the global South or on colonialism. Um, in fact, the field was quite white. It, it, it had been kind of um, criticized for being kind of white and like mm-hmm. Western centric. Um, so it was, it was primarily focused on Europe and, and North America. Um, now that has changed in recent years um, with a number of great studies. Um, but when I was during, in my PhD, I found that, you know, there was this robust um, scholarship on disability, but much of it didn't really apply to the context of Caribbean slavery. And I found that, you know, thinking about disability among an enslaved labor force whose impairments were produced by the violence of colonization really required a different set of methodologies than those that had been formulated in the northern metropole. So, for instance, 
many scholars who write about disability today demonstrate that impairment is not a personal tragedy, right? It's not something that needs to be overcome or prevented or cured, but rather it's really a universal condition. Most of us, your listeners, you know, most of us around the world will become disabled in our lifetimes. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, that's been a really important um, point for contemporary disability studies scholars. But when we try to understand the historical relationship between disability and colonialism, we have to, rem- we, ha- we can't forget that the disabilities wrought upon bonds people were produced by slavery and they involved incredible levels of violence. And in that way, disability among the enslaved, you know, it is, it is a kind of tragedy um, because of the violence that was involved. So, yeah, that's all to say that it kind of, I kind of had to, you know, I worked with what was there, but I also had to kind of um, push those methodologies to, you know, to really think how does colonialism change these methodologies, right? How does colonialism challenge these methodologies Mm -hmm. and in a similar way like i drew on um theories by julia kristeva and um, robert cover Giorgio gambin um and their works don't focus on blackness or slavery but i still found them meaningful for theorizing about slavery and disability and the kind of violent production of disability that is at the heart of histories of blackness in the atlantic world Um, and then lastly, in terms of like historical methodologies, I, I, you know, I was really inspired by the work of um, Saidia Hartman and Marisa Fuentes, Sasha Turner, Vincent Brown, Suende Mustakim, um, and others who are really pushing against the archive and, and writing about the violence of slavery while still leaving space for a social and cultural history of the enslaved. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, you just you just gave the whole, you know, you, you just gave a whole uh, historiographic uh, uh, lesson for, for, for <laughs> those doing comps. Right. Um, that, that That's great because, you know, I'm I'm a good friends with one of your old students, uh, uh, Carly, who's a, now a, a getting her Ph.D. in Caribbean history. Oh, um, yeah. And so, Edited you know. Carly. Hey, shouts out to her. Like, yo, 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 yo. Like that's, you know, we've, we've been doing comps to, and actually today, um, I don't know if you saw it, but she actually, this is actually really cool stuff to do. Um, so she actually passed her language exam, her French, I saw um, that. I, a, a language exam. Yeah. And, and the cool yeah. part is she'll forever be able to say, because we're talking about it, that this was the day that she, uh, passed it. And, and so it's, it's really cool to awesome. talk about yeah. And, and so, you know, and it's an interesting segue to, to look at this next question about challenges. Right. You know, we're talking about comps. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exams, you know, foreign language exams. You know, it's, those mm-hmm. are challenges. Um, and so for you um, in, in writing Between Fitness and Death, what were the biggest challenges that you faced while, you know, either researching and or writing mm-hmm. and or theorizing um, the, the core tenets of the book? Right. Especially in this moment, we want to we want to learn about, you know, what are the challenges that people face and how we can uh, all, you know, overcome them? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I, I'd love to, you know, um, learn about other people's challenges, too, because I think it just kind of like demystifies the archival experience, the research and writing experience. Exactly. Um, I mean, there's no disability index at the archives. Right. So I think one of my wow. 
one of my biggest challenges was just figuring out where to look for disability. Um, you know, the archive of slavery, there's been really great research lately on the archive of slavery and the kind of silences that abound in the archive of slavery. And when you add disability onto that, you know, you've got this, you've got your, your work cut out for you. Um, so I knew from slave law that enslaved people were disabled through legally sanctioned punishments, but finding sources to show that these were not just theoretical, right? That this violence actually happened was more difficult. Um, I found evidence of disability in the archive of slavery from multiple different sources eventually. And sources that are familiar to scholars of slavery, you know, they, these weren't, I didn't find like a new set of sources. I used runaway advertisements, slave law, abolitionist debates, um, but I read them, you know, as I said previously, through the lens of disability, right? So I read them mm -hmm. in a different analytic way. And, you know, because my topic was more conceptual, it then required me, it required that I draw all of these varying sources together into one narrative. Now, this isn't anything unique, like lots of people do that. But um, I think for a dissertation, it was not as contained as some dissertations tend to be. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think some of my peers kind of like were looking at like, you know, a particular event or, you know, a very a, a small time period. And mine was, just felt like very large and conceptual. Um, someone recently told me that I wrote my second book first. <laughs> and wow. I think that may be true. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so those were kind of, I think those are the, the biggest challenges that I faced. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. We're, we try to do our best at um, demystifying the process because, you know, it's almost as if and actually almost, you should probably even, uh, I should omit it. It almost feels like, you know, people allow kind of like this academic hazing to happen where it's mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, because I had to go through this, you should, but no, you know, we should, you know, try to move along in this process together. Um, and, and so, so thank you for sharing with us, um, what, what some of your uh, biggest challenges, uh, were in, 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 on the flip of that, in, in terms of your research, because I, I just love learning about this. Did anything surprise you, um, during the research process? Oh yeah, I mean many things. Um, I think one of the one of the most surprising things um, for me, you know, coming from a background in early modern British history, was just how the histories of monstrosity and deformity, which have kind of long been topics of historical inquiry for scholars of early modern Europe, mm -hmm. played a significant part in the development of English anti-black racism. So this is kind of where my his, my background in the history of early modern Britain really helped um, in their depictions of Africans and their descendants in the 16th and 17th centuries. Europeans drew on these pre-existing notions of deformity and, and monstrosity and, and specifically the inheritability of monstrosity to explain Africans and the origins of black skin. And, you know, Jennifer Morgan, we were chatting about her earlier, her, she's just done a fantastic job of showing the intersections between race and gender in early European travel, um, travelers' descriptions of African women. Mm -hmm. um, and when we approach these sources through a lens of disability, we come to see how early modern notions of disability and deformity were also being used to reduce Africans and their descendants to the status of the monstrous or the kind of subhuman. And this had a real impact 
a real impact. It wasn't just discursive. It had a real violent impact on African women who were believed to pass down the so-called monstrosity of blackness to their offspring based on the early modern concept of maternal imagination, Mm -hmm. um, which also has an interesting connection to the principle of maternal inheritance, right? The legal custom that um, the status of the mother determined the status of the child, right? right? Irrespective of the status of the father. So that principle, which is later called part of sequitur ventrum, um, is perhaps the defining principle of slavery because it sustained and expanded slavery by making the children of bondswomen the property of the mother's owner. So to, to go back to your question, I think, you know, one of the things that really surprised me was just how monstrosity is key to understanding these historical intersections. Um, and that, again, as a graduate student new to the study of Caribbean history, the interconnectedness of British national and global history um, was, you know, it, it really came to a head in those early, you know, in that early year of, of research. And yeah, and, and just like that, this, I, I kind of became aware of this history, this other part of British history, um, this imperial and post-imperial perspective that I had really not become, I had really not learned um, in my undergrad and, and early graduate years. Yeah. And, and I think that's an interesting story in and of itself about um, the things that you, you know, come into your um, dissertation work and, you know, what are the things that you know that you don't know? And then on the other side, you know, then you're, you have to kind of, as I've learned from other scholars on this program, then you almost have to, in a way, re- reinvent's not the right way to say, but um, maybe even learn even more. So it's so, mm-hmm. so, 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 so fascinating. Um and especially because, you know, this is, as you mentioned before, that this, um, that Between Fitness and Death is built on your um, um, uh, doctoral dissertation, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm. it is. Which is another encouraging bit of, uh, okay, <laughs> people that write dissertations can then flip it into a book. Okay, yeah, that that's yeah. a, like, this is a thing. <laughs> you know, this is a thing. Um and you had mentioned this uh, about um, early modern Britain. And so it made me think uh, your, your book makes me think often a lot about citizenship um, and, and uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Kennetta Perry's work in the 20th century talks about this in, in the Windrush generation. Um, but it, it's always been fascinating to me thinking about the nature of um, black Britishness and, and black citizenship um, in the 18th and 19th century. So this leads me to this question. Um, what role did race making play? in the development of British ideals of citizenship um, during this late 18th and uh, early 19th century? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So um, during the abolitionist movement, like leading up to the uh, slave trade's legal end in 1807, competing ideas about modern citizenship were rooted in the distinction between two models of emancipation, imperial humanitarianism and subjecthood, and revolutionary human rights and citizenship, which was exemplified by the Haitian Revolution. So the abolitionist movement, um, you know, it was fraught with hypocrisy. Although abolitionists supported abolition, um, they did not believe that Africans deserved the same so-called rights as Britons. And so the distinction between human rights, the notion that, you know, all humans are born deserving of a certain treatment, 
and humanitarianism, the notion that humans are obligated to be concerned with the welfare of the human race, really shaped British ideas about black citizenship after the human or sorry, after the Haitian Revolution. And so, you know, my book calls attention to this kind of underexplored aspect of British abolition, namely this distinction between human rights and humanitarianism that shaped English conceptualizations of black citizenship in the world of the Haitian Revolution. Um, Pro-slavery writers emphasize this kind of gendered image of the rebel um, an able-bodied, armed, and threatening black male, where abolitionists envisioned a black, suffering but supplicant bondsperson, um, and the place of supposedly disabled and able bodies as the basis for competing modern ideas about citizenship was rooted in this sharp distinction, right, between human imperial humanitarianism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and revolutionary human rights. Um, yeah, so they, you know, British abolitionist efforts to relieve the suffering of the disabled and the enslaved, they weren't, they weren't framed in terms of human rights. They were really framed in terms of humanitarianism. And they, abolitionists often linked the oppression of the disabled to the enslaved and kind of yoked humanitarianism to Britishness, but they remained silent on the idea of human rights. So humanitarian ideas of citizenship were what abolitionists offered to the enslaved. But it was also predicated on the assumption that it was not a real full form of citizenship. Um, I mm -hmm. hope that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, a, that's a phenomenal ex explication. Um, because, yeah, you know, just, just thinking about how, um, how, how citizenship can be, you know, framed in kind of like the, what, who, uh, who is desirous, you know, and, and who really isn't. And then also thinking about it in the sense of, you know, how does, um, specifically not only race, but specifically like blackness, you know, mm -hmm. construct, um, citizenship. And so I, I, I which is just a fascinating thing, you know, uh, aspect of your book, um, which, which then makes me think about, you know, um, cause I, I was teaching, uh, class earlier or during this discussion section rather and um it's always interesting thinking about how students you know what books that they in their minds are put in tandem so i think about your work mm. and you know obviously uh, dr sasha turner and uh, dr fuentes and and obviously dr morgan um and so i'm just uh you can, I, I don't know, some, some people can tell I'm in my comps mode still because I'm still trying to build everything together in my mind of, about genealogies and all that cool stuff. Oh, yeah, totally. No, that's, that's very cool. And I mean, I'm completely humbled and honored to be in the same sentence as all those amazing scholars. So thank you. You're very welcome. You're very, your work is very well deserving of it for sure. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the obvious, you know, important aspects of this time frame between uh, amelioration and um, um, ultimate uh, abolition of slavery in the in the British uh, Caribbean is uh, this this cool event. You know, some people might have heard of it. It's called uh, the Haitian Revolution, um, and so mm -hmm. um, it's very very important event. And so um, obviously the the Haitian Revolution plays a prominent role uh, in your text. Um, can you describe the role revolutionary emancipation played in British politicians' uh, imagination about the mm -hmm. role of African people? in the British empire. 
Yeah, so the British, you know, they have an interesting relationship to the Haitian Revolution because, you know, they're um, they're kicked out of of Haiti, and but in a you know, and then they kind of take up the figure of Toussaint Louverture as this kind of symbol of like anti-French um, politics and as a kind of ally to the English, um, and so this figure that's kind of exemplified by Louverture, um, really circulates in British abolitionist rhetoric. And he, you know, is kind of this, um, strong armed male figure, right? This revolutionary, um, a revolutionary man. Mm -hmm. And, but the, but the image of the rebel, the figure of the, of the rebel was also part of pro-slavery, uh, rhetoric. Um, pro-slavery mm-hmm. writers kind of use this figure to, um, you know, as a, as an argument against abolition, right. This kind of right. fear of the revolutionary black man. And so, um, you know, these were, uh, both pro-slavery and anti-slavery, uh, writers use this kind of figure. And then there was also the figure of the enslaved, which was often, um, who was often depicted as kind of broken and beaten. Right. So abolitionists emphasize the kind of violence of slavery and they portrayed the enslaved as kind of voiceless and passive sufferers of enslavement. So this is kind of like, you know, if you think about the famous slave medallion, um, right. am I, am I not a man or a brother? Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of exemplified by that, right? The man is on his knees, his hands are raised in supplication. He's very muscular, but he's in chains. Um, you know, his muscular frame does not um, really suggest or it it reflects his body's purpose to labor, right? Not his militarization. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, all of the, these images kind of um, circulated in this period and the broken bonds person, the figure of the kind of disabled bonds person became this key means of displacing the figure of the armed male rebel. Um, And so too, did the figure of the enslaved woman as this kind of pained, um, as this kind of pained female body in need of protection from long-term damage so that she might give birth and raise children. Um, This was another figure that circulated and, you know, kind of worked to displace the figure of the of the male rebel that was kind of um, exemplified by the Haitian Revolution. So it played a really big role in abolitionist discourse, and particularly when we think about disability and ability and the relationship between um, race and ability and disability and racism. Whew, yeah, and 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 you play, and 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 it makes me think also just about, um, you know. Toussaint just as a figure and and you know what what his role and almost in a way kind of like uh not a memification but mm-hmm. just just thinking about the role that print culture played you know in your work but also how even in context of today right um you know about film and and you know the the role that muscularity plays um mm-hmm. in our understanding of slave resistance um and 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 
you know, so, so, so your, your book really makes me think a lot about, um, uh, along with other works, makes me think a lot about the role that really just print culture plays in how we understand, um, what is and what isn't real. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and just think about imagination and, and in a way I kind of think about Black Panther and, 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 and that conversation too, as a more present, um, example. Um, and, and also, just just thinking about you had mentioned before um, the concept of human rights and and I'm and I'm really glad that you um, you know I, di- I didn't know what other terms that you might have played with or if you went straight to human rights but I think um, it's always nice to see um, at least or at least read into maybe as the the reader um, into you know what does human rights mean historically um, mm-hmm. and so on page 129 uh, you mentioned how and I quote until quite recently histories of disability and emancipation were severed from histories of human rights mm-hmm. um, c- can you talk a little bit more about why previous historians had not made a more explicit connection uh, b- between these well what I mean by that is rather that um that again, kind of going back to my previous answer that, um, emancipation and, and kind of, um, efforts to, you know, alleviate the suffering of disabled people, um, were until very recently about humanitarianism, not about human rights. So, um, it's not necessarily that historians haven't been, um, doing this, making these connections, but rather that, but, you know, the actual histories, the pasts of these two um, groups of people mm-hmm. have really been, um, you know, have really been connected to notions of humanitarianism and, and, you know, and these kind of practices as opposed to human rights. So up until recently, the, you know, or fairly recently in terms of modern history, um, you know, the idea that enslaved people should be emancipated. It was, you know, it was not an idea. It was not backed by understandings of human rights, right? That, um, and same with disabled folks. Um, mm-hmm. It was all kind of couched in this kind of paternalistic humanitarianism. Um, mm. And a kind of, you know, a humanitarian gift, right? Uh, of, mm-hmm. uh, by the British people. Um, and, uh, you know, we see this in the way that abolitionists depicted black citizenship, you know, as something achieved not through self-liberation, but through, again, you know, bestowing this humanitarian gift. Um, right. And they did so by emphasizing the debil- debilitated and suffering bondsmen. Um, they located the impetus for black rebellion, right, in the feeling and reactionary body rather than the thinking, planning you know, politically conscious mind. Um, so in abolitionist propaganda, you know, rebellion was kind of a non-politics and the language of disability in the representations of the tortured enslaved body was really used to elicit Christian sympathy, again, in the name of kind of humanitarianism as opposed to human rights and self-emancipation. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, no. And, and that's a phenomenal, phenomenal point. Um, and so thank you for, for answering that. And, and, and to 
kind of f- switch gears a little bit to, you know, going mm-hmm. from talking about um, between fitness and death and talking more about you as the scholar and, and as the author of, of, of the work. Um, what does researching and writing about disability and slavery um you know, in, in, in the, in the uh, British, you know, Atlantic world mean to you as a, as a scholar and also as a human being? Oh, it's such a big question. I mean, I'm so grateful to be part of these two fields. You know, I think, um, you know, disability history and slavery studies, um, there's more and more um, kind of cross-pollination happening between the, between the two fields. And I'm just so grateful to be in this conversation Um, you know, I think studying these pasts have, they've made, they've made me a better researcher, um, and teacher, but they've also made me, you know, a better mother, um, a better person. Um, I feel like I've become more aware of inequities, um, that we see Mm -hmm. today. They've made me more empathetic. They've also made me more angry, you know, a good angry at the continuation of injustices, um, and they've also, you know, on that point, they've, I think they've made me want to be part of the agitation, right? The agitation and the organization to make the world a better place. So much of that we saw this past spring and summer, right? Um, they've made me want right. to be a part of that. Um, you know, I think these are incredibly, his- incredibly important histories to know. And not just because, you know, quote unquote, others have history too, but because these pasts matter, right? The histories of slavery, race, and disability are still important to us today. The past is not something that's settled. Um, We see so many legacies today in the relationship between race and disability in the prison industrial complex, in state violence against Black and disabled folks, um, and in the unequal access to health care that many racialized folks face across the Americas. I mean, there's a host of ways in which we live with the kind of legacies or, or ghosts of, of slavery. Um, and so, yeah, I'm just so grateful to have the opportunity to tell these stories, to be part of the conversation. I'm grateful to be among so many incredible historians who inspire me to continue the work. And, you know, I, I, I think like, you know, one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves is why do we write? You know, why do we write? And, um, what's that? No, no, I said precisely. Yeah, precisely. precisely. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I don't, I'm sure because histories interest us, but I think there, there should be more of a a meaning behind that. Right. I think we should really kind of, uh, wrestle with that question. Why do I write? And for me, um, these histories, you know, they, um, they really matter to me. And I think about, you know, the, the um, scholars I named earlier, um, um, Marisa Fuentes and, and Saidia Hartman and others who have really focused on, um, on, you know, excavating. I think that's the word um, Marisa uses, um, kind of excavating the, these people from the archives and, you know, kind of telling or recreating the kind of their lives, their life worlds. Um, and I just feel so honored to be part of that. And it's an honor to uh, interview you um, for, for about such an important project. Um, and, and I think that uh, Between Fitness and Death can provide 
um, not only the listeners to the podcast, but the readers of the book, because, you know, we, you know, we are, our, our listeners, they're, 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 they're great. You know, they always go buy the books and, and or get their librarians and their libraries to, to go purchase uh, not just one, but multiple copies, right? Because we're going to get multiple people to read this. Um, and, and, and it's really great because in, in a world now where we're trying to, to better um, the, the, the world in, in this particular moment in history, history can provide um, help to, to, to solutions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, with, and especially looking at your work at the intersections of disability, slavery, and race, all very important and, and forever important um, particular topics. And so thank you for answering. And, and this will be the, the, the last question for you. Um, you know, we're talking about, you know, why you write and why you research. Um, but, but to go to you in particular, what did you learn about yourself from the dissertation all the way through the book process uh, up to now that we're discussing your, your, your finished product, your finished book, what did you learn about yourself while writing between fitness and death? Oh, man, um, that I can do hard things. <laughs> um, you know, I, I come from a, I've come from a working class background. I was the, the first um, person in my family to go to post-secondary school. And, uh, you know, so being, you know, writing a book, being a historian, getting a PhD was never, you know, in the clear, it was never really on the, on the path for me. You know, it wasn't, I, it wasn't really, a, a an option that I saw. I didn't know any, you know, um, professors or PhDs until I got to university. Um, so I really never thought I'd, I'd be here. So I think, for me, um, that's one of the big things is that, um, you know, working class people, uh, you know, belong in, in the academy and, um, and that, yeah, that I can, I can do hard things. And um, I also, you know, I think back to writing the dissertation and even writing the book, like I, I completed the um, I submitted my revisions. No, no, wait. I wrote my dissertation, completed my dissertation when I was pregnant with my second child. Wow. So I defended my PhD on a Tuesday and he was born on that Saturday. Wow. And then during my, when I got the um, job, I completed my revisions for the book when I was pregnant with my third baby, um, and submitted a month before he was born. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, like I, you know, I was right. Most of the writing of this book, um, happened in between, you know, loving, lovingly being inter- while lovingly being interrupted by, um, children. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, obviously pregnancy kind of pushed me to finish both the dissertation and the book. I was kind of campaigning to finish. Um, and uh, so I think I've also learned that I work well under pressure. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that, that, that's, a, that's an amazing uh, story and, and is really a, uh, an interesting and, and cool way um, to try to think about um, particular um, hallmark moments in our lives, right? Um, mm. and, and so for you, books and 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 uh, children, uh, book book babies and real babies um, <laughs> yeah, can totally. are always uh, uh, or often it seems from your story uh, connected, 
And so, yeah. um, I mean, I will have to find a new strategy, right? Because right. I don't think that works long term. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but the the point being that I work well under pressure. <laughs> right. Right. And and um and it also, you know, even just looking at this particular moment. Um, you know, here in the States and, and I'm sure uh, in, in Canada as well, you know, the question of, you know, working mothers and, and the, what the job uh, situation is going to be, you know, looking like in terms of uh, employment and, and, and such for, for future faculty. Um, you know, it, it is good, I'm sure, for the listeners and also even for myself uh, to, to, to learn about not only the, the birth of books, but also that people still have, you know, people are still living lives because I think that sometimes I think with our, with our students, they think that we are, uh, that we're not really human, that we're just kind of robotic, mm-hmm. that we just read and write for a living, which is great, but there is life that, yeah. that we live as well. And, um, it's always good to learn a little more about the authors, uh, that we love the most and, and your book definitely provided you a way to enter in that amazing pantheon. So, so thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. It's been a pleasure. For sure. And so y'all, look, this conversation has been so amazing. And today we've had the amazing opportunity to hear from Dr. Stephanie Hunt Kennedy, Associate Professor of History at the University of New Brunswick. And she is the amazing author of Between Fitness and Death, Disability and Slavery in the Caribbean. And so Dr. Hunt Kennedy, if, if, folks have any questions that they uh, want to to ask you about the book um, where, where can they where can they find you um, yeah I mean they can just email me if they have questions um, I mean my email is you can find it on the internet but it's just my two last names hunt.kennedy at umb.ca and um, yeah absolutely being that- be in contact. For sure. And for sure. And so, like I said, we're going to get folks uh, that we're not only pushing people to go to the polls to go vote. We're also pushing people to go <laughs> to uh, university press uh, websites like the University of Illinois Press, the uh, publisher of Between Fitness and Death, to go and purchase the books. And and y'all, please, if you can, if you can, and I'm going to say it one more time, if you can, buy directly from the press and or your independent book sellers as well, mm-hmm. right? Please go and support them because this moment definitely calls for us to uh, put our pull our resources together and to help uplift uh, uh, great institutions. And many of our um, independent bookstores are those. And uh, so folks, my name is Adam McNeil, host of New Books in African-American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Until next time, y'all, over and out. <laughs>